take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and our text this morning, Lord willing, will be verses 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. If you remember from last week, we had mentioned that the words by faith are 18 times in this chapter, and each of those sections is introduced to the church, a different example for us to encourage us in our pilgrimage through this life. Last week, we began to look at the faith of Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, and were encouraged by their faith in a hostile environment. And this morning, now we come to the faith of Moses himself. And the text really divides into three different areas. In our text this morning, verses 24 through 26, we see Moses' identification with the people of God. In verse 27, it moves in to the Exodus, and then verse 28, into the Passover. And so we see three examples given to us on Moses, of Moses. And then as you keep going in the chapter, then it moves into the people and the Exodus and their encounters following that. But this morning, as we begin to look at Moses' identification with the people of God, we have three things to consider. What Moses did the consequence of what Moses did, and the reason for what he did. So you think of it this way, what and consequence and reason. What he did, the consequence for what he did, and what was the reason for what he did. And so the first is what, what he did. And we see in the text, very clearly, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so let us hear the whole entire text, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so what he did is he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. And specifically what that means is Moses refused to identify himself with that group of people, the Egyptians that he was raised by and the culture that he was raised in, the luxuries that he experienced. He refused to be associated with that. And by faith, he rather identifies himself with the people of God and suffers. Now, just put yourself in the situation of Moses and all that Moses had experienced by this point in his life. He had what we would consider the life that we would all want. He had all that he wanted at his fingertips in terms of wealth and fluence, education, all of those things he had there and rather, he looks upon a people that are enslaved, that are treated poorly, uh, that Pharaoh at one time had tried to commit a mass holocaust upon, and he says, I want to be with them instead of all of these nice things I had. And the text makes this a very emphatic point, that he makes this choice not as a child. Children really do not oftentimes have all that is needed there to make rational decisions that are life-changing decisions. 
And he doesn't make it as a child that's based on emotion or influence. Notice what the text says. Moses makes this decision when he was grown up. So he rationally makes the decision to be with God's people. He's able to weigh the choice of remaining in Egyptian or going to be with God's people. He makes this choice through the maturity of manhood. And now we have to notice this phrase here that when he was grown up, it's really um, a double entendre. It's, it's not just simply referring to his maturity and his age. It also refers to his status. It's referring to the placement of his life, is, is that he has gotten someplace in life. He is not just merely a man, but he's a man of success. And to capture really what that means and what that looks like, we have to turn to Acts, and I'll turn there for you. In Acts chapter 7, in verse 20, we read of Moses through Stephen's account that gives us an idea of what he was experiencing it says, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Now, that phrase, as her own son, is key to our understanding. That is, all of the rights and privileges of royalty were at Moses' hands. They were there before his own feet. Verse 22, it says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of, Egypt, of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. In other words, Moses was not only privileged in terms of royalty, but he was quite capable. And so he was a person that would not have only, by inheritance, through his adopted mother, received certain things, he could also earn them on his own merit in terms of a secular society. Many ancient commentators actually believed that Moses was in line for the position of Pharaoh. That was Josephus, the Jewish historian's position. I, I don't think that that's right. I don't think we can necessarily make that. But it just goes to show that many previous commentators believed that his power was so great, he was, he was possibly in the position of Pharaoh himself. And so you consider all that would go with that for Moses, and he looks at what he has and he refuses it. He refuses what would be considered the greatest riches of wealth, power, and influence, as the text says in Hebrews, the treasures of Egypt all are before him. He does this to be with the people of God. Let that sink in for a moment. They did not have his education. They did not have his wealth. They did not have his influence. They did not have his lavish style. They had hardened, dirt-ingrained hands, and his hands were probably soft. He doesn't look upon them with disdain, and you see that oftentimes in people groups. He doesn't do that. Rather, he looks at them with a longing desire to actually be there in the trenches with them. What's the explanation for that? What's the explanation for Moses' desire to give up all of these riches? 
And, and it's not that he, he just uh, simply made a simple choice. It says he refused. And the idea that he refused the riches of treasures is that he re- repudiated them. So rather than, rather than being with his people, the Egyptians, he chose to be with the people of God, those that were slaves. Rather than seeing himself as superior, he actually repudiates the life of wealth and comfort. He repudiates the idea of being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and speaks of his royalty. That was his claim. That was his identity. His future had been marked out for him by his adopted mother. This seems to be stated without explicitly stated in in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, you begin to see the story unfold. In, in verse 10, it says, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. You know what's interesting as you read this account? Moses' adopted mother is always referred to, not by name, but the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Why is that the emphasis? I think the emphasis is because it's emphasizing the position that Moses was in. To emphasize over and over again, this is the daughter of Pharaoh, is to emphasize the position, the the privilege that Moses had, and it also then tells us this was a clear choice of conscience. It was a clear choice of faith that Moses makes this decision. But where did this faith come from? And let me ask this question as we look at this faithful men and women in Hebrews 11. And we, are we elevating Moses? Or are we elevating them? And in one sense, we can see that they're placed before us as an example in Scripture. Not to, to emulate in many ways. But at the same time, we also know that Moses was chosen by God before the foundations of the earth were even laid. And it was according to God's own good pleasure that he set Moses aside as his instrument of deliverance for his people. And so as we look at Moses as an example, as we look at any of them as an example, we have to first begin with God. That it was God's grace upon Moses. Moses' longing to be with his people and to be mistreated with his people was, was actually a grace of God that he wanted to be with the people of God. And so as we look at Moses as an example, think of it as this, as we see what he did that was exemplary, it's really an example for all of us of what the Christian life should be. So when you see these examples and they're put before us and we see their great attributes, it's an example of the fruit that is produced by faith alone. It is an example of what takes place in a regenerate person's life, is that these things should happen. And so as we look at his desire to be with his people, rather than elevate Moses here, we have to recognize that this desire is not a natural inclination, but is an extraordinary or supernatural desire And at the same time, we have to see it as a regenerative desire. 
In other words, this is the desire of all Christians, is that they desire to be with God's people. Notice what the psalmist says, and it's David writing this psalm, is in Psalm 16, in verse 3, David wrote, As for the saints in the lands, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. That is to say that David took pleasure in the people of God. He took pleasure and great delight in being with the people of God. This should be no surprise, because while we are called as individuals, we are not to remain individuals, and we've heard that many times, but we're called into an assembly. We're called into a people. It's called the church. What's Moses' desire? He says, these riches here? When I could be with the people of God, why would I choose to be anywhere else? And so just, just again, hang on this for a second. Because I think this is challenging for us. Moses embraces a people vastly different from himself. And you might think, well, he was a Hebrew. Only ethnically, only ethnically was he Hebrew. He wasn't raised as a Hebrew. He was raised as an Egyptian. He was educated as an Egyptian. He had all the Egyptian things. He would have worn Egyptian clothing and acted Egyptian. So while they might have shared the same ethnicity, they shared vastly different upbringings. Moses was not raised in that type of home. And so... In, in God's providence, we, we see the mysterious working of the promised reached Moses' heart and transformed him that he would then desire to identify with a foreign people as his own. And friends, this is really truly the beauty of what happens to a regenerative heart. When you, when you go into the church, you don't get to choose who, who it is that's going to be in the church. You oftentimes see in the church various different backgrounds, different hobbies, different ways of thinking, different socioeconomic things, all of these different barriers that outside of these walls might separate people. But when we come into this church, what do we see? The mystery of the church is that Christ has torn down the walls of hostility that may exist from different people. And that's exactly what happens in Moses' heart. And we have to see that this same, same desire that happens with Moses, and we, we see it in, in Exodus, it takes place and unfolds in this way in Exodus 2.11. One day when Moses had grown up, again, he's able to make decisions through the maturity of manhood. When he had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That is probably the point that, that Hebrews is referencing, is that where he makes this decision to side with the people of God, that he then identifies as his own people. And that came with a cost. 
That came with a cost. And we have to recognize something, though, is that cost is the same for the Christian as the desire is the same for Christian. And just reflect for, for a moment on, on some of Jesus' words. In Matthew chapter 8, says this in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Then a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and uh, birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. What does he say then? And leave the dead to bury their own dead. There's a distinct separation that takes place in chapter 12 of Matthew. In verse 46, we read these words, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mother. Notice the, the, the distinction that Christ makes. He says, They are, that is, that's presently, this is now my new relation. They, th this is, is and are our present tense. This is the new relation for those that come in Christ. So it should be no surprise that when we look to the book of Acts, we read the remarkable nature of the people of God. When we read this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what is described in a family. That's what you would do for your family. That's what you would do for your, your parents. That's what parents would do for their children. That's what you do for your grandparents. That's what you do for your family. But in Christ, we see that the church is this new family. And they wanted to be together. They wanted to be together. So what we see in Moses, we go, wow, that's remarkable. He gave up all of that. But what we see in Moses is what should be normative for the regenerate life. Is that there is a change in our desires, and those desires are actually to be with the people of God. That is a work of God's grace in our lives where there is this, there's this distinct change that's not natural and can only be explained by God's grace in our lives. This is an example put before us. It's challenging. This is challenging for us. Now, we know we're not saved by our desire to be in association with Christians, so we know then that what Moses experienced was something that God's, was God's grace. It was outside of himself, just as Christ taught would happen. And that change took place in Moses' heart, and he was given a new heart. And the Hebrews, in which this letter was written, and Moses is put forth as an example, remember the context it's always important to remember the context of why the letter was written. They were facing 
possible persecution. They were considering stepping away from the faith. Many of them were thinking of considering going back to Judaism because of, because of the persecution that they had faced in the past. So what would be the temptation? The temptation would be to disassociate with their brethren because of what it would cost them. That's why Moses is put before them is because they were facing the same temptation that Moses had. I can enjoy comforts of this life, or I can be in association with my brethren, which could bring me pain and suffering. This is not too far distant from us. The truth is, it's no longer advantageous to be a Christian in most of our society. There might be pockets of it, but if you doubt me, just ask the Christian baker that went through almost a decade of lawsuits because they refused to give in to the culture. If you doubt that, think about the Christian mom that was fired from her job for two Facebook posts. They had no connection with their job. That had a Christian nature to them. So if we think, oh, that, uh, it won't cost us anything, well, think again, it's cost many already. It may not that we're not getting our heads chopped off or being put in the arena, but to say it doesn't cost us anything would be to ignore the facts. And it may be tempting for us to say, maybe I just better be quiet and not touch on certain issues because of what it may cost me. And many churches are, in fact, doing that very thing. You see, many churches today are, are, are slowly experiencing a shift in their theology. Churches that would have held to the, a male eldership, to a male pastorate, all of a sudden their theology changed. They, they must have discovered some new passage of Scripture that they had never seen before. And all of a sudden, now their theology shifts. Why is that? Because the, the, the arguments are so persuasive in our culture today? No. It's because the fear of man is so persuasive. And many just sit back and let it happen. Social pressure is what causes us to disassociate with the people of God. And let me tell you, if you compromise on God's word at any place, you have already began to disassociate with God's people. So in a little way, where we can bring it back home, what stands in competition with Christ and his people in your own life? Is there anything that competes with Christ and his people in your heart today? That's something we need to all ask ourselves. Which leads us to the second point, which is the consequence for what Moses did. And it says that he suffered the reproach of Christ. And so that decision, in fact, cost him something. There was a consequence. He was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And that word mistreated, it literally means he joined in their suffering. It literally means to assume another suffering by joining in with them in suffering. And so he does this by choice. And the contrast is made in the verse. He can make this choice, or he can enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He can choose mistreatment, or he can have what the world says is this is the happiness you deserve. That's his choices. The happiness you deserve, 
or to join in with suffering. Now just notice what it says about sin here. And we have to understand the nature of sin. It says, then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There, there's really two primary things that are stated here about sin that we have to, we have to note and deal with. First, it's enjoyable. Sin brings a certain enjoyment. And if we look at it from this perspective, he is giving up that which might make him happy in a secular way of thinking. Or in a moment of temptation, we oftentimes think, if I do this, this will bring me some form of happiness. And we think I'm supposed to be happy. Right? You know, be careful when someone says, well, doesn't God want you to be happy? Moses had in his possession the ability to enjoy sin. And he probably did. Because notice what it says also about sin. It brings pleasure. This is why, actually, when you read your English translation, it it says that sin was enjoyable to enjoy. That that word in in enjoy isn't really there. It's it's really a verb of, of having Having, that is, he's enjoying the pleasure that you, sin brings an enjoyment of pleasure. Pleasure refers to the satisfaction of one's desires that they have. That's what, that's what it means, pleasure. So there's a satisfaction that comes with sin. And this is not complicated, right? Our, our human nature in Adam is oftentimes described as dead and following after the lust and the passions of this world. We tangibly know what that means. All of us are sinners. All of us continue to sin. And by God's grace, we struggle with sin. But as we think of this idea of pleasure, I think sometimes we, we make the mistake of categorizing that word pleasure in some sort of horrible, in the worst light possible, to alleviate our own guilty conscience and our own sinfulness that we embark in on a daily basis. What I mean is if we relegate the idea of the pleasures of sin to, to the perversity and those things that I, I wouldn't do or I don't do those things, and you know, if we just relegate sin and the pleasures of sin to that, we've missed the point and the danger and the subtlety of sin itself. We have to recognize it, and when we think about the, 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 the works of the flesh, it includes jealousy. Includes strife, fits of anger, which Moses was greatly guilty of. Drunkenness, envy, rivalries. You could also include, and I think the scriptures do this very poignantly, is that idea of gossip. And it even describes gossip as being a delectable morsel that we crave, which means that in in some sinister way, people actually find pleasure in gossip. There's some sort of enjoyment in it, and that's why the Proverbs teach us that it is like a, a morsel that someone craves. So we have to recognize that there's enjoyment and there's pleasure in sin. To commit sin brings pleasure to the person in some sense. And actually, we, we have to see this true nature of sin. We have to know the enemy we face. 
If you think about in 1 John in chapter 2, I think it's giving us a commentary on, on Eve's temptation. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's very interesting. He doesn't talk about these desires coming from Satan. He says, actually, these are here in the world right here. This is what you face every single day as you face the, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life. Those were those all of the things that Eve was going through before she partook of the fruit. But by God's grace, Moses was able to see something of the nature of sin, wasn't he? Now, Moses continued to be a sinner, but by God's grace... He begins to understand the nature of sin. And we see that he is he's weighing this decision. People of God or the luxuries of this world? Being mistreated or being served? He recognizes sin is fleeting. And that's the second thing about sin. We have to recognize it's fleeting. That means it's passing. It's temporary. It's not permanent. In other words, whatever enjoyment one finds in sin, it lasts but a moment, and then it's gone. It does not last. And that's exactly what John began to teach in 1 John chapter 2. Right after describing this idea of the desires of the flesh, he says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, there's the contrast. Sin is enjoyable, but for a moment... But it goes away because the world is going away. The flesh and all of these things, these desires, they're going away. And for the Christian, they recognize this. Moses began to recognize this. The non-Christian, you might say, well, they recognize it because sin may leave one of them feeling guilty, oftentimes because of fear of consequence. But the Christian when confronted with sin and the fleeting nature of it, turns in repentance. In other words, as we look at Moses' faith, repentance was turning to the people of God. Repentance was turning away from the luxuries of life that he had and to turn and be identified with God's people. And that is the nature of repentance. Repentance. For the Christian, they can't live with the sin. It bothers them and they hate it. And let me tell you, you must hate sin. You have to hate it. It has to bother you. It, it, it's got to be what, what keeps us up at night. And then also why we're able to go to sleep is because we know in Christ we're forgiven of it. You think of the pictures that were always drawn of Christian from Pilgrim's Progress and the big burden on his back. That's what, what sin oftentimes is. So they recognize the forgiveness they have in Christ and have turned in repentance. And faith and repentance are, are two sides of the same coin. When one trusts in, Christ, trusts in Christ, repentance comes. A change of mind takes place. And this is what we read of Moses. So the decision was to have temporary joy or eternal joy. What is before us this morning? How do, we do, how do we view sin in the Christian life? Do we make exceptions and choose that which brings us temporary 
enjoyment? How foolish of us. We know it's fleeting. We know it does not last. We know it's going away. In fact, we, we see in Moses' example before us this morning, he exemplifies Jesus' question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What would it profit Moses to have remained an Egyptian? Would it cost him his soul? But he gave it up for a greater joy. Notice what the greater joy was. The text tells us he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ was actually something greater. What is the reproach of Christ? Very simply, it's just simply suffering for Christ. But we need to see it more nuanced than just simply suffering for Christ. We, we must actually have in view and have in mind Christ's own suffering and how we're actually called into it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, look to Jesus, the founder of this. And when Christians suffer, we can never separate our suffering from our union with Christ and the fact that we are actually called unto the suffering as well. Hebrews 11, or excuse me, 13, verse 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burdened outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Oh, thank you that Jesus went outside the gate and suffered for us. And it would be wonderful if we could just leave it there. But verse 13 doesn't allow us. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The Christian life is a life that's called into a, a, a life of suffering as Christ suffered. And if you, you read passages like Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, where it begins with blessed are, verse 11 of Matthew 5 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my count. These are not ideals the Christian are, is supposed to meet. Otherwise, it wouldn't say blessed are you. It's stating a reality of the Christian that they are translated, and this comes from the special love of God. Blessed are you. Think about what Paul says to the church of Philippi. After he tells them that faith is a gift, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, wonderful! For the sake of Christ, we believe in him. But the verse doesn't stop. But also suffer for his sake. We never disconnect the idea of human suffering, of a human affliction, being mistreated with the people of God from the very mistreatment that Christ had. There's some wonderful encouragement in this. And the first is we are not alone. We have a long, godly line that is put before us. 
I, I love church history. I love reading Christian biography. I'm so thankful that the ladies are reading the biography of Corey Ten Boom because in, in those stories, we're actually able to read that in God's providence, see, others went through affliction, but God got them through it. And where, where they didn't get through it in a Jim Elliott, where he was, he was killed and martyred by the Aka Indians, we're able to look that in God's providence that his death was the means of a people group being converted to Christ. We may not like it that way, but we can look back and rejoice in God's providence and how he worked and used Jim Elliot in such a profound way in death. And so we have to recognize that we are never alone, but most profoundly, most profoundly, Christ bears our affliction with us. We are not alone in affliction. When the church was persecuted, Jesus did not ask, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And so in, in the, the great mystery of God, the God who does not suffer, we read that Christ says, why are you persecuting me? We as the church have Christ with us through it all who will never depart from us. Why, why, why then, though, why must we suffer? Well, there's many places we could go in Scripture. Let me just give you one. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4-7, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice the comparison, the contrast. That the affliction we have is actually, which is, is, is true affliction. Scripture never downplays the realities of life. It states them very matter-of-factly. But reminds us, wait, God is doing something in preparing you for something that is far greater, that far outweighs. If you, if you could put your affliction on a scale, and, and that, that the scale would go down, but you put the eternal weight of glory, it would throw your afflictions off. And that's what affliction does for us. William Perkins, the great Puritan, says, For look, as the showers in the springtime cause the buds to appear, so do afflictions make manifest God's grace in His children. We oftentimes don't view affliction as God's grace in our life, but we can't escape the fact that it is God's grace in our lives. Now, what was the reason Moses did what he did? What was the reason that he would choose to suffer well, it tells us, for he was looking to the reward. Now, the first thing that we have to be sure of is that suffering for Christ does not earn us anything with God. God, God doesn't say, well, you did the, this certain amount of suffering, so now I'll grant you eternal life. That's, that's not what it's referring to. He doesn't reward us eternal life. We're, we're looking at the fruit of faith, 
We're looking at what happens as one that has been converted. We're not able to earn reward with God for eternal life. Our debt is too great and can only be paid by the eternal Son of God. So faith in terms of righteousness before God does not look upon one's work, but rather looks upon Christ. However, if we are in Christ, we are promised in Christ rewards, and we lay hold of them by faith, and they actually serve to motivate us. What is the word or the reward? I think Paul gives us an idea, and I, I just admit that it's, it's rather... Um, foggy in my own mind, but Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the reward? A crown of life, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as it tells us in Hebrews. But there's also something else about this, that we have to recognize in this idea of affliction and that Moses chose this affliction and that is what happens when people turn to God. The early church actually viewed suffering itself as a reward. Does that sound strange? Notice what it says in Acts chapter 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name in some sense, they saw that their suffering with Christ was, was actually a reward that they had received even here and now. In 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That comes with that, that life of following Christ. So, as you reflect upon this, do you find joy in being counted a child of God over the fleeting pleasures of this life? Do you count it a great joy? Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 8, where he says that we, and I I love, you know, in, in your Bibles, oftentimes you have little headings there that separate um, the, the chapter divisions, and that's really helpful for doing Bible study, but sometimes those, those divisions miss, help us to miss the connection. And so if you read in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he speaks of us being called children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, there's a division there, but there shouldn't be. For I consider that the sufferings, that that suffering we were called to, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As we think of that reward, what is the glory that is to be revealed to us? This is not a denial of the joys that we may have and may experience in this world, because we have many of them, don't we? We can enjoy the pleasures of life, but we're not free to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. And we recognize and we're motivated by the fact that there is an eternal kingdom awaiting us. 
because we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has changed us, our desires have changed, that we desire to rather be with the people of God and suffer mistreatment than to experience all that the world has before us. That's the decision every Christian has to make, isn't it? Is that if I'm in Christ, I walk in Christ, and whatever that life may bring, it's a joyful life because it's a life in Christ. And we recognize the fleeting nature of this world that's passing away along with its desires does not bring us a lasting joy, but only true and lasting and eternal joy is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as Moses is our example this morning that God has given us, let us, like Moses, also set our eyes upon the promise. Let us set our eyes upon the reward that we have in Christ of the upward call. And let us strive to it, joining Paul in the race, exerting all that we have towards it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we are forgiven that in Christ we may be set free from the pleasures of this world, and that by Christ and in Christ our desires are new, they're different, that we now we desire to be with those that are called by Christ's name. Father, we pray your grace that these desires would increase day by day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.